Well, welcome to the Hills. I know I'm talking to people at South Lake Campus, at West Fort Worth Campus, and all of you watching online. And thank the elders for that moment. I did not know that was coming until just a day or two ago. If I had known, I would have been on vacation this weekend. Uh, it has been a true blessing to be here for 30 years. It really has. I've worked with some amazing co-workers and uh, some amazing elders. I've received a lot more than I've given. I never imagined when I came here and stood in this uh, pulpit on the first Sunday of June in 1989 that I would be here 30 years later. And let's be honest, we all know the reason you've kept me this long is that you don't want to lose Jamie. But it has been a wonderful ride. I just want to thank you. I... Um, also want to thank all of you. Oh, okay. I also want to thank all of you. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> thank you very, very much. Now, please sit down. And trust me, that's thanks enough. You don't need to hug me after the service is over. <laughs> I want to thank all of you that served so beautifully and some are spectacular. People from every single campus were in the cast, uh, taught the classes, and many, many people were blessed. So thank you for that. So we're in this series titled Epic Grace, and we're asking the question, can any fail be so epic that it can go beyond the reach of the grace of God? We're going to end this series this month with three of the biggest fails in the Bible. I heard about a professor, he's gone on to be with the Lord since then, named Brokenshire. He taught at a Christian college many years ago in the Midwest. And he would take these freshman students every year at the start of the school year, and they'd sit in his class first day, and he would say, do any of you have problems with the Bible? And of course, they would all say, well, no. And then he would say, then why don't you read it? You will. And the point he was trying to make is if you have never really wrestled with some of the things that are in the Bible, you haven't read it very intently. Now, I know the Bible calls me to rest, but there's just some places in the Bible where I'm called to wrestle. So what we're going to do is we finish this series. We have three straight weeks of wrestling matches. Now, you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of kind of a hall of faith of some of the biggest heroes in the scriptures, like Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And it gets to the end of the chapter, and the author has this verse, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. Now, when I read that sentence, my first question is, how did some of those guys get into the hall of faith? And we're going to talk next week about Samson, who had a life full of fails. We're going to close with one of the hardest stories in the Bible, David and Bathsheba. And we're going to realize how ugly that whole event really was. But we're going to talk today about Jephthah. And if you say, well, I've never heard of Jephthah, there's a reason you've never heard of Jephthah. If you have heard of Jephthah, you have never read his story to your children at bedtime. 
Jephthah will never be the main character in a summer spectacular. And there is a reason why, in my 41st year of preaching, this is the first sermon I have ever preached on Jephthah. And I'm already wondering if I made a good decision. So let's get ready to wrestle. So, we've got to know a little bit about the context before we can know about the man. We find Jephthah in the book of Judges. We're going to start in chapter 10 with these verses. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know this sad cycle just continues. The people rebel, turn against God. They get oppressed. They call for deliverance. God sends a judge. They are delivered. They rebel. They turn against God. They are oppressed. They call out for deliverance. God responds. It just keeps happening and happening. Now, the author mentions seven sets of gods that they were serving at the time. Here's his point. In Hebrew mind, seven is the idea of complete or total. In other words, what he's saying is they were totally an idolatrous people. They've completely abandoned faithful service to Yahweh. And it only led to slavery. And by the way, that's what idolatry always does. And the irony is the more idolatry enslaves us, the harder we chase it. We, we chase our addictions. We chase our lusts. We chase the things that we think will make us happy. They make us empty. So we think, you know what, I better chase a little harder. And so look at these verbs. They were shattered. They were crushed. They were oppressed. But evidently, they were not broken. Because for the very first time in the book of Judges, the people cry out to God, and God says, No. Read with me. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Zidonians, the Amalekites, the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help... Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Now, again, he mentioned seven nations. What's the point? God is saying, I've been completely faithful to you. Our relationship is not in good place, and it's not my fault. I have been completely faithful, and you have been consistently unfaithful. I save you from a nation, then you turn around and serve the gods of the nation you asked me to save you from. And I'm not going to do that anymore. Now, this is called the wrath of God. The wrath of God in the Bible isn't typically God sending some kind of terrible judgment. It is typically God saying, I'm going to let you have what you want. I am going to let you suffer the consequences of the kind of choices you want to make. You see, God knew the cries of the people were not sincere. How do you know that? Well, because they hadn't turned away from their bells yet. I see, they, they were wanting God's help, but they weren't wanting 
obedience. They weren't returning to the king. They were going back to the pharmacist to get some pain relief. By the way, somebody listening to me right now doesn't need to listen to the rest of the sermon because that's the reason God brought you here. God brought you here to say to you, the reason you and I are not in a good place is because you only want me when life gets in a mess. You want drugs to feel better. You don't want to stop making the choices that get you into the pain. So, God wasn't duped then or now. But neither was God done. So, verse 15. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Now watch. Then they got rid of the foreign gods. You see, the first time they cried out, they still wanted to keep their idols. But this time they say, whatever you want to do, but please rescue. They get rid of their foreign gods, and they serve the Lord and love this. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God would have been completely just if he had ignored them. But because God is completely merciful, he remains faithful to his fickle children. It says he could bear their misery no longer. You know, we have a God who grieves over our griefs, even when it was our own bad choices that caused our grief. And so now it's time to meet Jephthah. Chapter 11. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Now, right off the bat, we know this is one unique dude. Let me tell you who Jephthah is. You remember that kid in school? That was big and bad. And nobody wanted to be his friend, but nobody wanted to be his enemy. That's Jephthah. Jephthah is kind of a mix between Robin Hood and a crime boss. And he's out there in the desert, and he's got a band of thugs just doing whatever he wants to do. And you don't want to make him mad, and you don't want to be his friend. He's like, some of you watch that show, 24. Remember Jack Bauer? Everyone kept wanting to get rid of Jack because they didn't like how they got things done. So they'd get rid of Jack until the terrorists showed up. Then everybody say, who's got Jack's cell phone? We need Jack. And that's Jephthah. So look at verse 4. Sometime later when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? They're doing to him kind of like they do to God. And the elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, returning to you now, come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. So Jephthah becomes their leader, a mighty warrior. And the first thing he does is rather surprising. Rather than just go out and attack the Ammonites, he tries diplomacy. Now, we don't have time to read what he does. There's a long speech where he sends a message to the king of the Ammonites saying, Okay, you say you're mad at us because we took your land. Well, let's just do some history. In the first place, um, it was never really your land. It was the Amorites' land. Second place, we didn't steal it. 
we asked for permission to walk through it with our forefathers, and they said no one attacked us, and we got it by defending ourselves. And in the third place, it's 300 years ago. Why are you bringing it up now? Now, all that's important for this reason. It shows that Jephthah has a very strong understanding of the history of Israel. And evidently, he probably has some familiarity with the law of Moses. In fact, nobody in the book of Judges uses the personal name of God more than Jephthah does. So, it's a very brilliant thing he tries to do. And so far, everything he has said is very impressive. But you just wish, going forward, he would have kept his mouth shut. Because now we get to the hardest part to read. The part that part of me wishes wasn't in the Bible. The part that we never teach our children. A part we're going to have to wrestle with. Here's what it says. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And then Jephthah went out to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as abel Karamim, and thus Israel subdued Ammon. Right? Everything's good. And when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrel, she was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, no, my daughter. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, You've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. And she and her friends went to the wills and wept that they would never marry. And after two months, she returned to her father. And he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. Now you know why I waited 40 years to deal with this one. How did this guy get into Hebrews chapter 11? He knew so much about the history of Israel. Then does he not know that the law of Moses clearly, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 18 and other places, forbids human sacrifice? And so through the years, people have wrestled with this text to try to defend Jephthah. Some say, well, you know, he must have thought an animal was going to come out of his house. Well, in the first place, an animal wouldn't have been in his house. And it wouldn't have been an impressive offering to God. Now, if he'd have said, I'm going to offer a hundred bulls and a thousand sheep, maybe. But say, whatever goat comes out of my house, I'm going to offer. That's not what he was doing. Then others are going to wrestle with it while saying, well, what he was really going to do is offer his daughter to the tabernacle. Kind of like Hannah did with Samuel. And she's going to serve At the tabernacle and never get to be married and have kids. No, no, no. There's no way that interpretation. When he saw his daughter, it says he was devastated. 
Every time he promised to give God a burnt offering, every time the word burnt offering is in the Old Testament, it is talking about a blood sacrifice. Are you saying? Yes, exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jephthah vowed the unthinkable and the indefensible. Evidently, he thought some low-status person was going to walk out of his house. Maybe some low-level servant. Maybe one of the thugs and scoundrels and criminals he hung out with in his past life. And he saw making that vow more important than the life of his own daughter. So he keeps a promise that is so horrific, the author can't even bring himself to tell you any more than just, well, he did what he said he'd do. Why would he do that? Why would he even think a vow like that would help him gain a victory and incur the favor of God? And here's the reason. It's exactly the kind of thing his pagan neighbors did to incur the favor of their gods. You see, Jephthah viewed God the way all the gods of the neighbors did. That he is unwielding, that he is reluctant, that he's typically angry. And if you are going to get a favor from him, you're going to have to wrestle for it. You're going to have to make a bargain. You're going to have to strike some kind of deal. He was totally sincere, but his view of God is totally wrong. He couldn't fathom Yahweh was a God of grace. See, if he had known the heart of his God, he would have realized immediately, I did a foolish thing, and I need to repent of it and beg for God's forgiveness. But he didn't know God as merciful. Only as powerful. He knew the hand of God. He did not know the heart of God. And consequently, when we think of Jephthah, we don't remember his victory. We remember the terrible tragedy his own foolishness brought into his life. Now, we got some wrestling to do. You talk about a fail. Where do you see the grace of God in this story? And one thing that I try to do when I read stories like this is I try to read them through the lens of the very first Christians. Remember that uh, the very first Christians grew up in Jewish homes. They would have heard this story all their lives. Then they meet Jesus. They become convinced he's the Messiah. And now as a follower of Yeshua, as a follower of Jesus, I go back and I read that story I've heard all my life. But I read it through a different lens. So you're a brand new Christian. How do you read this story? Through the eyes of Jesus. Well, it's hard. But I'm going to give you three ways I see grace in this story. Here's the first. I see it in the revelation of the consequences of compromised faith. And here's what I mean. The Bible is God telling us what really happened. It's not a book of cover-ups. It's not a book of fairy tales where everybody is perfect and there's always happy endings. Why? Because God wants to warn us of what happens when we mix faith with Him with the popular cultural ideologies of our day. Now, I meant to bring a package of Oscar Mayer wieners. I actually bought one this week and I left it at home. But here's why. I know it's summer season. Everybody loves hot dogs, right? Well, I bought a package this week and I said, what are the actual contents of America's most popular wiener? Here's what I wrote down. Mechanically separated turkey, chicken, and pork. 
Corn syrup, distilled white vinegar, sodium phosphate, and cherry powder flavor. Doesn't that make your stomach growl? We just take some of this and some of that, and we mix it all up, and we eat it because it tastes good. Even if it may not be good for us. We do the same thing with faith. We just take some of this and some of that, and we put it all together, and we come up with a faith that feels good to us. Here's the thing. Ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have victims. And so in Jephthah's day, the God of choice was violence. That's how you solved all your problems. You prayed for a God to do some violence. So he just took that idol and brought it into his faith with Yahweh and mixed it together. And you see what he got. And it's so easy for us to look back on his generation with contempt. And it's so hard for us to look in the mirror and see how our own generation does many of the same things. We take the popular cultural ideologies of our day and we mix them in with faith and come up with something that feels good to us. Uh, The MIT Institute published this journal recently and they had an article called The Hipster Effect. And the idea was you've got all these hipsters who want to be uh, non-conformist, right? But they all look alike. Uh, They all have... Uh, facial hair and beanie caps and flannel shirts. And so this one guy writes in furious saying, first off, that's not true. And second, I'm going to sue you for using my picture on the cover of your magazine without my permission. And so the people called Getty Images where they get their pictures from. I said, didn't that model sign a release? Turns out it wasn't that guy. It was someone else. He was mad because we don't all look alike and couldn't recognize that the guy on the cover wasn't him. (laughs) Because they all look alike. Here's my point. We judge these other cultures, both in the past and even today around the world, for all their terrible thinking. But it's always a problem, and we all do it. And bad ideas have victims. I'll just share with you some of the ways right now in the world we sacrifice especially young women. Right now in the world especially in nations like China and India and in the West, there's 200 more million men than women. Why is that? Only the most naive pro-choice advocate could not realize that elective abortion was going to become selective abortion. It's gender side. We worship the idol of self-fulfillment and I don't want a girl. And so millions of babies made in the image of God are sacrificed on our idol for the crime of being a girl. The uh, Academy of Natural Sciences in Britain have said between 1970 and the current time, at least 23 million abortions in England have been sex-driven. They didn't want a girl. I think Jephthah's generation would say that that's pretty barbaric. We worship the idol of lust. The sex industry and the porn industry are mammoth. So just remember, every time you make that click on the internet or watch that classy entertainment with nudity, that that industry is driven by using women. The average age of a girl in the sex industry that enters is 13. And we sacrifice them on our idols. 
In the last generation, 30 million teenagers have been diagnosed with bulimia and anorexia in our country, most of them women, because we worship the idol of the perfect body image. It's easy for us to judge other people's idols. And here's God's punishment. He lets us keep them. God lets us keep our idols. Romans 1, 26, because God, people did those things, God left them and let them do the shameful things they wanted to do. The same verse in Eugene Peterson's The Message says, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Now, here's what I believe. It is gracious of God to say, I'm going to let you see what happens when you mix faith with idol worship. I'm not going to stop you, but I'm going to let you see. Impure faith hurts people. But the issue is there's no pure people, is there? And that's the second way I see grace in this story. I wrestle with it. I'm being honest. I'm struggling with this guy. But I see grace in this story in the realization that God uses deeply flawed people. In fact, almost all the deliverers in the book of Judges are surprise choices. Why does God choose such flawed people? Answer, what other choice does he have? Now, it's very popular today to discredit public figures for mistakes they made in their past. And I, I, I know I'm on dangerous ground here. I don't want to diminish any evil thing that someone has done in their past. But sometimes when I see their critics, I think, you know, the only difference between them and you is that there wasn't some iPhone taping you when you were stupid. And so we, we find these people and we look at all the ways we can say, you aren't a leader because look at all the fail in your past. I think a better question than can we find where they failed is can we see how God is using them? Because God uses deeply flawed people. And so I remember over 10 years ago, I'm riding with my father. After my mother passed away, my father went into a pretty dark depression for a season. And we're in the car and we're having a serious conversation. And my dad says, I'm doing better. Someone gave me a book to read and it's really helping me. What book, dad? Well, he told me. It was a book written by a popular prosperity theologian and evangelist. And almost everything in that book I disagree with. And I wanted to say, Dad, don't read that book. And it is like the Holy Spirit just prompted me to think for a second. Do I not have permission to use whatever I want to use to help my people when they're in misery? Yeah, you do. And so we need to understand and be more gracious to flawed people. Was Martin Luther King a perfect man? No. Did God use him? Absolutely. Do I agree with all theology of Mother Teresa? No. Did God use her? Absolutely. God can use some pretty crooked tricks and make a straight road. Paul says in Philippians 1, there's people out there preaching Christ and they don't even have good motives. What do I care? People are accepting Christ. God is using them. Sometimes God uses you because of you and sometimes God uses you in spite of you. But God uses you and God uses me. 
And I'm thankful because I'm a pretty crooked tool. I find a lot of hope in Philippians 1, 6. God began doing a good work in you. And I'm sure he'll continue until it's finished when Christ Jesus comes again. Now, here's the point. God has made it clear. I'm not through working in you, Rick, till Jesus gets back. But the thing is, God can work through me while he's still having to work in me. And he can you too because he's that good. And because he's that driven with compassion for people in misery. And he's compelled to act and use whoever he can find. And so... I think this should give us great confidence, but not, not in human leaders, in God. You see, I, I think the earliest Christians, when they would go back and read a story like this, I think they would have thought, it just helps me realize we need a better Savior. And I'm thankful God is honest. I'm thankful the Bible tells us the faith and the fails of all the people. I think their stories are meant to deliver us to the ultimate deliverer. There was an evangelist named uh, Hearn in Philadelphia years ago doing a revival. And someone came and said, I wish you wouldn't talk about the cross and about the blood and about atonement. Why can't you just preach Jesus as the great example, the moral teacher, the great ethicist? Would you follow him if I did that? Yes. Okay, well, the first thing I would say is that Jesus never sinned. Can you claim that? Well, of course not. I can't. I've sinned. And the evangelist replied, then, sir, your greatest need is an example. Your greatest need is a Savior. I need a Savior who was moved to compassion over the misery my own sins have created for me. I need a better Savior who doesn't make me wrestle and bargain for His favor. I need a Savior who will lay down His life instead of demanding mine. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. And he will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who were eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is an epic Savior. And all these stories of all the people in the Bible who fought and failed and believed are there to point to Him. And so, why don't you stop wrestling with grace and start resting in it? Let me pray over this. Oh God, this has been a tough morning. This has been a tough story. Now, we thank you that you tell the truth. And we thank you that your grace is bigger than our fails. That you are merciful to us when we mess faith up with bad ideas. That you're kind to us to use us even when we're still in need of repair. And most of all, God, we thank you.
that Jesus is the perfect deliverer, the epic Savior. And we cannot fail past the reach of His grace. And so give us encouragement today, God. The salvation is epic. And His name is Jesus. And in that name we pray. Amen.